Welcome to Don't Box Me In, the show that features conversations with people from all walks of life, talking about their extraordinary experiences and inspirational messages. Now, here's your host, Lana Reed. Well, hello, hello, hello. Like they said, I'm Lana Reed, and welcome back to this week's edition of Don't Box Me In. Today's guest is Mrs. Jawanda Parker, who is the founder and CEO of Hope and Healing Corporation. Now, in 2003, she started this organization to help young girls and teens suffering with self-esteem and identity issues. Mrs. Parker has also written her memoir titled It Only Hurts When I Can't Run, which is a personal story of her life and her survival and resilience. Jawanda Parker has served as a mentor, trainer, life wholeness coach, and spiritual formation guide, and has a host of other credits to her name that would take up the rest of the show if I gave them all out. But I'm so excited to have her on the show with me today and extend a big welcome her way. Jawanda, welcome, welcome to Don't Box Me In. Thank you. It's so good to be with you today. Likewise, likewise. How's everything uh, out there? What, what, What area are you in? I am in Florida, Jacksonville, Florida. Jacksonville, Florida. Okay, I've spent some time down there. So how are things going down there today? It's going well. It's a beautiful day. It's calm, and um, the weather is just perfect. Awesome, awesome. So if you don't mind, um, I, I would like to spend a, a nice piece of the show today kind of giving the audience uh the, your past, your story, and uh, telling them who you are. So uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to start off at the beginning here. So you're in Florida now, and I know because um, I took some time to read. That's where you were born, in Florida? Yes, I was born in central Florida in a little town called Sebring. It's like a little hammock. Um, and now I live in north Florida. Okay. And you, your book, it says that you are the daughter of many mothers, uh, but Benta January Black was the vessel of my beginnings. So I'm going to assume by reading that, that Benta is your biological mother? Yes, she is my biological mother. Okay. And at, and, uh, at a young age, she took you guys to Washington, D.C. Um, do you know why she moved you from Florida to, to D.C.? Um, from all accounts, my mother had me as a teenager, and mm-hmm. she had been the first part of of my life um, up until about about two, where she was really struggling. Okay. And so um, she went to Washington after receiving some, I don't know if it was accolades or just an opportunity for her to sing with mm-hmm. a group. And once she got there, she ended up staying in Washington. So she took me with her. Um, before we left, we were actually just kind of going from house to house. She was trying to make it as a teenage mother. Her her mother, my grandmother, um, basically put her out the house and she had to stand for herself. So that was the reason and and how we ended up in Washington. Okay. Now, you mentioned that she was singing, and you also said in the book that she was a multi-talented woman. What other kind of skills and talents did your mother possess? Well, she she sang, but she ended up being an artist. That was one of her her main strengths outside of cooking. She was a a very good cook. Um, Mm -hmm. But she ended up with being an artist and um, 
many areas of her life. She liked to paint. And during the good times in her life, she actually had a, a art studio. And she named it Aljo Art after her name, her original name. Okay. Um, and she actually did very well. She was noted for in the Smithsonian Institution. In fact, she was invited to come out to do that. So she ended up being an artist just painting on oil paintings, and then she did some water paintings and um, even some finger paintings. And along with that, just being very classy, um, making things, sewing. So she was just a, a very expressive type person. And I was saying, like, with most creative people, they say that uh, most people with creative souls uh, end up with the most demons. And reading your story, it seems like your mother was kind of struggling with her own issues. Um, when did life begin to take a turn for your mother? Uh, to take a turn for the worse, I would yeah, for, say. Yeah, for the worse, yeah. Right at the time when she was, it, it seemed as if she was, according to her, like she was, coming out of the, the struggle of being a single parent. She hooked up with some friends who introduced her to um, the party life. And she she experimented, and in experimenting, she um, did not at that time develop a drug addiction, but she was actually dating a guy who was very much involved. And mm-hmm. so when she tried to leave that relationship, if you, you you see in the book, once she found out what she was involved in and she tried to leave, she was not able to leave. And once we came back to Florida and Miami, we were involved in an accident, and the accident was not a accident um, by way of just happenstance. It was an intentional um, threat to kill her. And mm. while she was recuperating, um, the pain, she she spent some time, um, months and months in the hospital. She Her back was broken and, and lost her eyesight and different things. And so the pain was excruciating, and the medical drugs did not help. And so she was introduced to heroin. And that began her, her long life of... Um, a drug addiction because she found when she took that, it eliminated the pain that she was in. And so that started her her um, addiction with um, drugs. Okay. Now, how did, how did that affect you and your life as her child going through that with her? You know, I actually remember the accident because I was with her, um, and... It, it affected me because I remembered the wonderful experience we had in Washington. She was a, a great mother. Mm-hmm. And I remember leaving. And I remember how we left. And right before that, a little, some of the things had begun to change. And so after the accident, that's what started my whole life of being bounced from, from place place and living in different um, cities and um, eventually put into foster care. And so I, I vividly remember the, the the turning point from her being an attentive mother to being um, very creative for things that we did in Washington, just having a wonderful childhood to um, 
her sickness and then her addiction and then me going from one place to the next place. Okay. Now, you mentioned this accident. How old were you when the accident happened? I was five. Okay, you were five. Yes. I remember um, because I I was looking for the um, ice cream truck, and I was saying, let's get ice cream, and right as I was saying that, we were were hit. Uh, That famous sound that every kid loves to hear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you're five years old, and um, you say this begins the process of you uh, bouncing around from home to home. I, I was uh, checking out the book, and I think if I read it correctly, a lady by the name of Miss Taylor was the first person you went to stay with. Is that correct? Miss Taylor was the person who came to get me. She was the, the family friend that my mother wanted me to go live with. The first person that I stayed with was a family um, in the book, they're named the Harmons. Mm-hmm. They were a pseudo-family for my mother and myself while we were in Miami. So okay. I stayed with them until Miss Taylor actually came to them. Okay. And Miss Taylor, she was kind of close to the family, correct? She grew up um, being a family member, uh, a family friend of my grandmother. Um, and so she was extremely close to my mother's family. So it's like a, 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 a aunt that was not uh, blood related. And so she would have been the person that they would have selected to take care of me. Okay. Now, um, we know you had some bad experience with the, the various places that you bounced around with, but uh, Miss Taylor, was that some good days for you staying with her or no? Uh Yes and no. Okay. The, the yes part would be uh, Miss Taylor was very influential in society. She's a very smart lady. Um, she exposed me to God, exposed mm-hmm. me to Christian living. She also exposed me to educational things. And so that would be yes, high morals um, on the outside mm-hmm. and manners, all of that. The no part would be is that she was also struggling with her own demons. And uh, on the inside, it was a totally different life than what was portrayed on the outside. So I kind of learned how to live in both places. On the inside, you knew what kind of child to be, and on the outside, you know what kind of child to represent her well. And so that that, was both ends. And how long did you end up staying with Ms. Taylor? I would say throughout my life because I would always end up going back to her. It didn't okay. matter what, and if I was sent to another part of Florida, um, when my mom would come get me or I was kidnapped or something happened at that foster care place, Miss Taylor would be the person that I would go back to. When I found out later, the reason why she was is because she had been granted um, temporary custody of me um, during those early times. And so she was the person that always ended up um, getting me if something went awry someplace else. Okay, okay. So good or bad, we had a little bit of consistency there with Ms. Taylor. Um, we're going to take a quick commercial break, uh, Jawanda, and when we come back, we're going to talk more about your life story. Stay with me. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Here's your host, Lana Reed. Welcome back. Welcome back. Today I am hanging out with the author of the book, It Only Hurts When I Can't Run, Mrs. Jawanda Parker. And before the break, uh, she was sharing with us um, uh, her, some of her life story. And we were at the part where she was kind of... Uh, she went to stay with Miss Taylor and, and was going back and forth throughout her life to Mrs. Taylor. Uh, but I read that there was also a period in time that you also spent some time in foster care. So um, yeah. I just want to kind of get a handle on what caused you to leave Miss Taylor, what, what caused you to end up in foster care, or, or how that all transpired. Miss Taylor actually became a foster care parent. Okay. And so that's how that that piece all worked out. Um, there were some other family members who kind of jumped on board in foster care, and so um, I went with them. And then later on, because I was considered a foster foster um, care child or a child of the court, when I was a teenager, I was sent out to other families that I had no no connections with. And so all. from early on, yes, yes. Mm. Wow. So early on it was with Miss Taylor, who actually became one, and then I just went from her to other. You know, you, you just hear so many um, stories about foster care, and you know underneath it the intention is good with the, the concept, but uh, it just seems like we can do better. We've with yes. the whole way it rolls out, um, and and listening to you tell your story, you know, you kind of it kind of reconfirms the thought process here. But um, wow, in your book you have a, a chapter, and it says, "I died when I was 11." So I'm curious, um, what happened when you were 11 years old? When I was 11, I was actually raped. Mm. Prior to 11. I had been molested a couple of times, and so I, I was, it's, it's bad to say I was kind of used to that, but mm. in, in light of it, I had been molested. Mm-hmm. At 11, I was actually really penetrated. Mm-hmm. And so I remember that scene um, after it was over, just lying in, in the bed in a puddle of, um, I had, some blood and mm-hmm. and just body juices and and I and, and it sounds graphic only because that's how how much it impacted me and I remember just balling up in almost like a fetal position and mentally checking out because up to that point I'd had so many heartbreaks um, disappointments my body had been violated. Um, the rejection was was extremely real, and then to have such a violent attack, it was as if it was no reason to get out of that position. And I stayed there for a while, and I remember that the only reason why I got up is because I could hear Miss Taylor was coming in, and mm-hmm. I needed to quickly get get myself cleaned up some kind of way so that no one would know. And, um, that, so it never it. crossed your mind to tell Miss Taylor this happened to me. Um, maybe I need some help, or no. Okay, I, I I felt like I couldn't tell because of our relationship, and 
the relationship was strained, and I did not feel close enough, really, to anybody to tell that story. And because I had already been violated, and at um, some point in time, you know, as a child, you're looking to, to find a safe, a safe spot, a safe person, a safe ear, and not knowing how to articulate this happened to me or this is happening and what's going to happen afterwards. And so um, my first thought was to hide it and mm-hmm. to just stay quiet until I could do something about it. Um, but I didn't know what I could do about it, and I definitely didn't feel the security to express it with anyone. A lot of weight for an 11-year-old. Now, can I ask, because um, you mentioned you were molested and then we have the rape at 11, um, the perpetrators, were they people that you knew or was it just a random person? Or All of my perpetrators were people that I knew, people that were close in proximity or close to the family unit of where I was, or people who were considered um, good, upright, standing people. Except for two, um, so they would know they were. It was not random. It was. It was, um, and, and it all happened within what you would consider safe places, mm. um, where people would trust their kids. And I, I mean, I guess that makes it harder for a young mind to process because here it is. You're looking at these people like. These are adults who are supposed to be looking after me, taking care of me, have the best interests. Um, how do I, how do I say in my my little person's mind to to anybody, hey, this is this is what's going on with these people that everybody is is thinking that is is looking out for my best interest or are upstanding people in the community or something like that. It's it's very. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, no matter how much we can teach and impart these lessons on our kids, I, it's really something that I guess they they will have to struggle with if it actually occurs to them. It's just a because we just kids just look up to adults naturally, and to kind of impart that lesson and to know you know speak up, no, you have the right to say something, you know, uh, you know say something to anybody until somebody listens to you. Because you also on the other end you hear these stories where you know a child does say something to their aunt or their mom or whatever and and the claims are dismissed which is more painful to the child in that yes yes absolutely awesome. so you also mentioned earlier that uh you were kidnapped now you just there's so much going on here so what when were you how old were you when you were kidnapped and what was that about I was kidnapped actually by my mother I was the award of the state in the, in the care and I was in elementary school in second grade after we'd been separated. And um, she had some of her friends and actually my uncle come to the school and kind of lured me to uh, the other side of the school where she was. And once I found out what was happening, we ended up going um, to Miami, going south, and... Uh, it was later, but I understood that it was an actual kidnapping mm-hmm. and that the authorities were involved and, um, you know, basically they were on the hunt for me. It was only later that I learned that exactly what happened. But, yes, it was my mom trying to um, 
take me back. Okay. Now, did she take you back with the understanding that terrible things were happening to you, or did she just take you back because she she just wanted her child back? I mean, what did she give you any, or did you find out any reason over the years as to what motivated her to do that? Yes, I and, and some of that actually helped to heal my relationship with my mother because I get that question all the time. Um, okay. But yes, it was because she wanted her child when she was sick and in the hospital and, and going through everything. She was actually trying to get herself together. And okay. on every attempt, she would be um, just sized or blindsided or something else would come up. And um, Miss Taylor was a very influential person. Mm-hmm. And so she was able to make sure that the situation for my, my mother looked bad and her situation was good to keep me. And so every attempt that Ms. my mom would, would try, then she was blocked. And so... At this point, she just felt like, I need my child. I need my kid. Let me go get her by any means necessary. And so she did. She she found a way to do that. And once we were settled, she also found a way to keep me hidden for a couple of years until she, um, you know, we had the really bad break where um, her drug addiction was just out of control. And then that's when they actually found me. Okay. Okay. Now, you mentioned Miss Taylor did her part to make sure your mother did not get you back. Why, maybe you don't know the answer, but why did Miss Taylor, was she so bent on keeping you? You know, you found out things later on. Originally, I did not know because our relationship was not a good relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, at the start, I would say it was a good relationship because she had this little girl, uh, and she made sure that I, I did everything well. I was a good student. I sang. I was, you know, like the poster child of, of being a, a great child. And she was the one who was responsible for making me this wonderful kid. Every everything I, I entered, I won. Um, so that that was, I guess, to her benefit. Look at what I have done. It was only later that I found out um, that there are some some good perks being a foster care provider. And so although she had um, a good job and everything, she was also being compensated well. Okay. And and I wasn't the only foster care child that she had. And so that that came out a little bit later on. Okay, So, so it was for economic reasons that she wanted to keep you from your mother. That's what it ended up being, so I've been told. Okay. Okay. So you were with Miss Taylor, you said, all the way back off and on up until you were 18? Yes, until I graduated high school. My last year of school, I ended up with Miss Taylor. Okay. Now, I also read that one of your survival mechanisms that you used for your sanity during all of this was that you used to run away um, again and again. Do you recall how old you were when you first ran away? Actually, I ran away when I was my first time remembering um, leaving, not knowing that I was running, was after we'd come back 
from um, Washington when I was actually with Miss Taylor. And so I, I just remember putting on some little shoes and walking out the house and <laughs> <laughs> everybody on the sidewalk and saying, um, do you know where my mother is? She's forgotten me. Do you know my mother? She's forgotten me. And I've heard that story a couple of times from different people that it was so cute that these adults were looking at this little girl in her pajamas standing out on the sidewalk asking every adult, do you know where my mother is? She forgot me. And, um, so Miss Taylor and her her um, mother they came out to get me, but I, I must have been about five or six at that point. And so I remember putting on those shoes going out. So that was be the first time that I ran away. <laughs> Going to find my mom at five years old. <laughs> yeah, five years old. I need to find her. All right. So was it many times after that that you ran away? I ran away um, in different ways. I ran away physically a couple of times when I was um, in Central Florida and at my grandmother's house. I ran away to a, a, a family friend that I'd known um, as a teenager. I ran away, but I also ran away in my mind, just yes. daydreaming. Um, I always felt like my life would get better, this was not real, and so when the pain was so intense, I would escape. I also would sleep. Um, I have a, a nickname that they would call me, um, Sammy Jane, and <laughs> it was only because it was a guy who had an issue with epileptic or mm-hmm. something like that. And so whenever I would be so hurt or just didn't understand, I would make myself go to sleep, and I would sleep for hours. And so in counseling, I discovered those were the other ways that I ran away. I ran away journaling, writing everything down, um, just just going into my own world. So it was mentally and physically. Okay, mentally, physically escaping, running away. Okay, gotcha. So we're going to take a quick commercial break. Uh, Jawanda, stay with me. We'll be right back with your story right after this. Let's return to Don't Box Me In with your host, Lana Reed. Welcome back. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Today I am with the CEO of the Hope and Healing Corporation, and she is also the author of the book, It Only Hurts When I Can't Run, Miss, Mrs. Jawanda Parker. And uh, we were talking about some of the survival tools she used to uh, escape her situation, and some of that was physical and mentally running away. Um, now, we, we spent a lot of time talking about your story, and uh, a key figure that we haven't mentioned yet is your dad, and I'm assuming that he wasn't in the picture in the beginning. Was there ever a point where he kind of popped up somewhere along the way? My dad uh, was very visible in in, uh, in the hometown where I grew up, visible in terms of his in-laws lived directly next door to Miss Taylor. Oh. So he was very visible. He would pass my house and blow the horn at his in-laws or either stop at his in-laws. But he was very absent in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he really didn't have much to do with me. And later I found out 
uh, from my mother that she uh, she became pregnant because he had raped her. And okay. so that point put the pieces together as to why I was denied originally and then uh, why he really didn't have anything to do with me. His family, however, always tried to embrace me, but I didn't know them because I was not a part of that family structure. So he was always visible, always knew who he was. And then um, later in life, he really tried to stake claim as to me being his daughter. And even now, um, so it's not like it's a thing of, of, no, I don't know him, nothing like that. It's just more so that relationship never did get an opportunity to grow or build or to really be established. Okay. So today it's still kind of strained? It is very strange, um, just simply because we, we've never had connection. Um, okay. I could call him when I go in that area. I may go by and see him, but like, hey, Dad, how you doing? Are we going to talk? No, it's, it's not that kind of relationship. He's almost a stranger. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And is your mom, is she still with us today? My mom died um, a few months before the book was released. Um, we, we spent the last couple of, uh, months discussing the book quite a bit, but she, she died, um, really unexpectedly. We, we did not know that she was as sick as she was because mm-hmm. she went in the hospital and then she died a month later. Okay. My condolences. Now you, you wrote in the book that, um, you say that your mother really cared about you, and that statement in itself is takes a lot of emotional growth to get to for a child uh, to to have a, a parental figure take them through so many changes as your mother did. Um, how, how did you get to that spot in life? Counseling and God. Okay. Uh, when I said earlier that I had a good mother at the beginning. It was something in the back of my mind that I always remember the wonderful mother. And so as as life played itself out, I was I was thrown off. Who is this person when I remember this other person? Mm-hmm. And so I guess that was the foundation of understanding that she could actually love me. As we went through life and, you know, the, the times where she was actually sober, and we had good conversation and even some good relationships, I could see that person again. It was only in her addiction uh, that she turned into what I would call a beast. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that in and of itself, as I pondered, how could, how could this person be so many different people? I began to understand addiction. I, I studied it. I you know, researched it. And then going through counseling and coming to grips that she was sick. Addiction mm-hmm. is, a, is a sickness. Yes. It's just like someone with heart disease or diabetes or something. Um, they can't help that their toes need to be amputated. It's a, it's a part of the, the sickness. And so um, her neglect, her anger, her absenteeism, her abuse even was a part of her sickness. But then in the counseling part of it, I understood and, and talking with her that she had she had had a, a rough childhood herself. 
So I really don't think that my mother was would have ever been able to really parent me okay. um, from a healthy place. And then God was the center of my life. Um, from an early child, Miss Taylor was, was um, she did something great when she introduced me to God at an early age, and that was the foundation. Amazing. Now, listening to your story, and and we're we're thinking we have a, a mother who, um, although she starts the process off well, she falls um, to drugs. We have a father who's not present. We have uh, being thrown back and forth in the foster system, house to house. Uh, we have a young girl who, um, unfortunately, is molested and then raped. Um, and, and you say you finally get away from Ms. Taylor's house at the age of 18. But I'm assuming that an 18-year-old carrying all of this weight is still emotionally damaged. Um, when did the process of healing and transformation begin for you? Uh, the process actually started, I was about, I would say, 22 or 23. I remember answering the phone. It was a telemarketer. And um, answering the phone and the telemarketer asking me questions. And one of the questions was, what was your name? <laughs> and I remember saying my first name, she said, the, I couldn't say the other part of my name. <laughs> and sitting there thinking, what is my what is my last name? What is my last name? And so we we continued on, and I remember saying, sir, I need to hang up. Mm-hmm. And from there, I walked to the to my bathroom and I looked at myself in the mirror, and it was like I could not stand looking at looking at me. And I sobbed. And stop and stop and stop. I called my doctor, went to the doctor, and I kept telling them um, how I was feeling. And we came to the conclusion that I was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, You're going to have to get into counseling, or we're going to send you somewhere because he, you know, based on um, some physical things, he's examined me, so he knew about the rape and, you know, mm-hmm. other things that happened. And so he said, uh, you need counseling. This is what I'm, I'm, I'm recommending. So that was, that was the indicator that I knew that I had been so damaged that I was, I was unraveling. The other part of that is I've always had a, um, intense fear of authority figures. And so at that stage in my life, at that age, I remember just a, a, a very um, almost like rebellious type something was coming out of me that was like, no one is ever going to hurt me again. You know, that type of yes. thing. Yes. Very aggressive with, with authority figures. So I knew something had to change there because I was entering the workplace and all of that. So that's when the healing process started as far as me understanding that I had the residue of my childhood. And I started counseling, coupled with the fact that I've always been in church. And so in church, I would, I would hear it and um, just try to, try to get to the love of God, but I couldn't. Okay. Now you mentioned the residuals that you had of your childhood, and you, you know, at twenty-two, twenty-three, you were um, 
now in counseling, which is a wonderful thing. Um, I, I also want to mention that somewhere along the way, there has been, um, even in all of the, the bad people that you've been exposed to your, in your life, there's this one person that I read that kind of popped up early somewhere in your life um, and it's kind of been there throughout and and that is your now to be husband and you would think that a female that a young female that has went through the challenges that you went through that it would be hard to develop uh, a healthy emotional relationship with a man uh, when when did your husband enter your life I was 14 okay uh, he, Fourteen is when I met him, and he was the perfect gentleman, the only gentleman that he had, had known um, and experienced. And so that was something that just kind of lit up in me. Wow, okay. he didn't hit up on me. So I was 14. 14, and, uh, and, and he, he saw something in you, even through the pain, and said, I'm going to stick this out and ride this with Jawanda, huh? Yes, we actually, at 14, we didn't start dating at that point. It was um, a couple of years later when I went to college that we we connected my first year in college and we dated all through college. Um, and then uh, those re- residual effects, I could not allow him to love me. And he, again, was the perfect gentleman and just showered me with unconditional love. It didn't matter how ugly I was, how mean I was, how distant I was. He he remained constant. And so all of my life I, I remembered him even after I gave him back his ring, we were engaged and everything. <laughs> I just could not marry him because I was not at a place where I could love. Mm-hmm. And then um, 25 years later, he um, looked me up and dated 18 months, and after dating, we got married, and we just had our first child together. <laughs> awesome. Love it. Love it. And, you know, I can hear the joy in your voice when you're talking about him. It's such a beautiful thing, such a beautiful thing. We're going to take our last commercial break of the day. When we come back, we're going to talk about the uh, Hope and Healing Corporation and uh, some more. So stay with me. We'll be right back right after this. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Here's your host, Lana Reed. Welcome back. Welcome back. Today I am hanging out with Mrs. Jawanda Parker. She is the author of the book, It Only Hurts When I Can't Run, and she is also the founder and CEO of Hope and Healing Corporation. Now, um, when did you open up shop for the Hope and Healing Corporation? I actually opened up shop around 2003. Okay. Um, and in So in 2015, you've really branched far out because you work internationally now, right? I do have, uh, uh, yes, an orphanage. Uh, we were working in Haiti as well, uh, but we had some challenges there. And so now it's just in Africa with a, a 
orphanage in Africa, and um, yes, internationally with Africa. Okay, okay. Now, so what what all happens there at the Hope and Healing Corporation? I know you said mentorship and stuff, but what all do you guys do there? Um, what we do now, uh, after getting married and moving from Central Florida to North Florida, I'm having to um, revamp and okay. set up shop here in North Florida. I pastor two churches, and so this new year we're going in and implementing the same type thing here in Jacksonville. Okay. And so um, the, the same as the mentoring has continued, um, the seminars have continued and, and will jump back up as far as doing more of those and traveling more. But I eventually would like to um, build a halfway house or a home for young girls. And so that's my course. That's my course. That's what I would like to do and then have a stationary place where we can continue to um, do that type of services in a stationary place um, where people can actually come and not just it's, it's located in one particular geographical area where only it's servicing just that group. Okay. Now, I, I like that the halfway house for young girls. Uh, and I'm curious, you know, being a product of the foster care system, you know, working now with young girls, um, your, your personal experience, what would you say that we need to improve about the foster care system as it stands today? I would say, honestly, just, just doing more in-depth screening. Okay. That would be one that's high on the list. The other thing is creating places for kids. There's so many, there's so much happening to, to their, like for me, I, I didn't know who to stop. didn't know where I was going to find police or rescue. And so that's what, that's amazing. Just to mm-hmm. have those, those places where people will feel safe. Because you're already traumatized by everything that has happened and then to go into a different home. Many times, you know, in the home that I was in, I didn't get to miss it because they had a, a, their own. And so uh, automatically you feel like an outside. So in the system with the training, there's different making sure that it's wrong. You understand the dynamics home and the child and keep creating those spaces with Okay. Okay. Now, I also read that you've got a uh, music CD out, and we didn't talk anything about the fact that you, you've got this talent here. Um, when did you begin singing? I began singing very early. Um, started out leading my church choir as a as a little person in kindergarten or, or um, first grade, mm-hmm. and um, so singing has been a part of my life all my life, and I just kept it up, kept singing, singing in school, did um, the whole traveling the state concerts, and then in college I traveled with the, the choir, and then eventually um, branched out and 
did some singing on my own and I started the group. Okay. So um, you started this group that the CD is going to be released in 2016, correct? Yes. Oh, okay. So when do we, what's the title of the CD and when do we expect it out? We are expecting it um, hopefully by the end of January. That's the hope. Um, as I, I said earlier, I just had a baby, so I'm still on maternity leave. Oh, okay. So we're do we have a boy or girl? We have a girl. A awesome. Adira. Um, and so we're we're working now with the engineer. Everything is done. They're just waiting on me to approve and proof the last mastering piece of it. And then we'll be able to load it on iTunes and have it out. Um, the title of the CD is called Jesus Is. And it's, um, it just comes comes from the fact that Jesus can be anything that you want him to be. And it has a good calypso beat to it um, that's really catchy and fun to sing. Okay. Calypso. So, um, you know, you said it's kind of tying in for me. Is that the background there with Benta and all of that? There's some sort of Caribbean feel for you? With, oh, with Benta? Uh-huh. No, n- not really. Um, okay. I'm just a, a diverse type person. Okay. And so I, I love uh, diversity okay. with everyone. So, so you, you um, minister in two churches, I think, if I'm, my memory serves me correct. Where can we catch you at on um, Sundays in Florida? In Florida, my first service is at um, Highlands United Methodist Church. And then I pack up and go to Wesley. Um, United Methodist Church. I serve two churches, and so they're on the north side of Jacksonville. Okay, and and you're not on maternity leave from that. You're still doing that right now. No, I'm on maternity leave. <laughs> okay, okay. So we have to wait a few more months there. Okay. So what's next on the uh, pipeline for Juanda? I think I read you were going to put out some more books. Yes, yes, yes. You know, the writing aspect of it and writing um, and and being able to talk with people and doing seminars, it's helping me to understand that we need something in our hands and to be able to tell my story so candidly and transparent. It has also opened up um, just a plethora of people who, who, who are struggling with these same issues but have not shared it. And mm-hmm. so... I'm in the process now of just putting together some um, some some self-help, some workbooks that can kind of go along with that. And then volume two of um, It Only Hurts. It talks more about the transformation part and coming to grips with um, my mother's addiction and then having the healing aspect of it. So volume two will be coming out um, soon. Not soon, but in the in the future. And then um, the aspect of my father, that understanding the effect of not having a father with a girl, mm-hmm. and what that all represents. And so um, I'm I'm in the process of, of just working through those and seeing which one is going to come out next. A lot on your plate for the new mother too, as well. Yes, yes, yes. 
<laughs> okay. Now, how do people pick up a copy of It Only Hurts When I Can't Run? You can pick up a copy at Amazon.com, um, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, Staples, Age Books. Um, and those are the places that you can pick up a copy of It Only Hurts. Now, I also mentioned in the opening that you are also a mentor trainer, a life wholeness coach, and a spiritual formation guide. So if somebody wants to connect with you because you're, you're, who you are resonates with them, how do they reach out to you for some sort of counseling and coaching? The counseling and coaching piece, um, I do that. You can reach out to me. Actually, it's so funny, Lana. My, it's not funny. <laughs> It was actually a horrible thing. My webmaster was updating the website, and it totally crashed. Oh, um, wow. Yes, um, just two nights ago. So he's in the process of updating the website. But the website will have that information to um, to, to hire me for a life coach, not okay. a life strategist. And okay. so my website is jawanda.com. It's just my name. Mm-hmm. I'm also, um, you can, and also on the website too, it gives you the information where I'm located if, if someone is in this local area. Um, but the coaching aspect I normally do, uh, via courses. And so they can pick up that information as soon as the website is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So he, he's expecting to have it up and running by when again? Uh, with everything, it should be up and running by the end of this week. Okay. Um, he's, he's working around the clock. I think he has some stuff on it. Now I looked at it before the show. I was like having a fit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm up here. I'm about to talk about it. And I don't even have my marketing piece in place, but you know, it's, it's what happens. We, you know, it's all going to yeah. work out. It's all going to fit as it should. So we're not going to worry about it. Um, Jawanda, we are at the end of the hour here. I have had a wonderful time talking uh, with you. Everybody, please make sure you go out to uh, purchase her book, It Only Hurts When I Can't Run, and uh, check back on Sunday at jawanda.com for website. Yeah. It'll be up and running by then. Jawanda, thank you so much for hanging out with me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. Likewise, likewise. That is all for this week's show. I'll be back next week at the same time. Until then, remember when it comes to your dreams, the words can't and won't should never slow you down. There's always space to change and to grow. Don't be boxed in. Live your very best life. I am your host, Lana Reed, and I'll see you all next week. <laughs>